You're listening to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Notoff. I interview former Blue Angel pilots and crew. My guest for this episode is Ron Renfro, who was the official photographer for the Blue Angels back in 1970 all the way through 1973 and had a front row seat to the Blue Angels during their time in the F-4 Phantom. Now, if you're not familiar with Ron's name, no problem. I guarantee you're probably familiar with some of his photos. And Ron's going to give us some insights into some of the most epic photos he took during his time with the Blues. Now, one of my favorite things about this interview was the behind-the-curtain access that Ron gave us when talking about Boss Harley Hall, Boss Skip Umstead, Boss Don Bentley, Jim Mislowski, Ernie Christensen, and J.D. Davis. The conversation turns and we end up talking about the unfortunate events of 1973 in Lakehurst, New Jersey, which led to the premature end of the Blue Angels find the F-4 Phantom. All this triggered a bunch more conversation and we end up going all over the place, but we get a couple extra really good stories out of Ron. So if you like the Blue Angels and you like Blue Angel history, then stick around and please join me in welcoming Ron Ripro to the podcast. All right, Ron Renfro, thank you for joining me on the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I just realized today is April 24th, 2020. That's the 74th anniversary of the Blue Angels. Today's their birthday. I couldn't think of a better way of spending that birthday than talking to you and hearing your stories. So thanks for joining me today. (laughs) Well, there's always room for good sea stories. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So you and I both live in the great state of Texas. Is, Is that where you grew up? I did. I was born up in the Panhandle, northeast of Amarillo, and uh, grew up there. And then I went to school. When I got out of high school, I went to school, went to the University of New Mexico. And I uh, was out there for six years. And then I came to Dallas. I was recruited by an electronics company, and uh, I moved to Dallas in 67. Did you plan on going to the Navy, or did that happen by circumstance? Were you drafted? I had intended on going in the Navy. One of my classmates at New Mexico State University was the Navy recruiter in Las Cruces. That's where the university is. And he was a Navy chief and the Vietnam War was hot and heavy. He convinced me to take the test to uh, go to OCS. And I did take the test and uh, I was all set to go. And then I went to the New Mexico Broadcasters Convention and uh, Collins Radio from Dallas was at the convention and they talked to me about coming to work for them and they offered me a job as a field service engineer, and I came with a draft deferment. So uh, I decided to take the job, and the Navy recruiter told me, no problem, I got credit for you already. So he wasn't upset, and uh, so I moved to Dallas, and I, I started, I was traveling all the time, and so after a couple of years of traveling darn near full-time, uh, there was a job in the company. I just built a TV facility for the company, and they asked me if I would change jobs and come over and work at the TV facility. So I great. Well, that was around Christmas or so, and then around the first of April, oddly enough, April Fool's Day, I got a notice from my draft board that I was being reclassified, and I called the head of the draft board, and he told me that he was going to take me. I was 25 at the time. And he said, I, I got to have you by the time you're 26 or I can't have you. So I went downtown to the Navy recruiting station in Dallas and uh, told them I wanted to go ahead and uh, go in the Navy. And they told me that, well, I didn't have a master's degree and they weren't taking anyone without a master's degree. There were so many guys trying to get in the Navy. I should go down to the other uh, recruiting station where enlisted recruiting happened. And so I went down there and they put me in a program that uh, I went in the Navy Reserves for a while, and I was going to teach computer systems design in the Navy up in Bainbridge, Maryland, and it was a direct procurement, no boot camp, two years active duty, four years reserves, and it was great. So they swore me in and got me out of the the reach of the Army, and uh, about a month later, I got a, a letter from the Navy Department telling me that the program had been canceled and that I would be going into the regular Navy on September the 26th that fall. And so uh, I did, and they sent me down to, in typical Navy, they, you fill out, you tell them what, what you want to do. And they gave me a choice of three boot camps, and I chose San Diego, and they sent me to Orlando. And uh, it was fortuitous because I had a buddy I'd gone to school with that was also in the Navy, had been in the Navy a couple of years already. And he was a, a journalist and was a DJ with Armed Forces Radio and Television. And he said, you don't want to be a journalist. You want to uh, you want to be a photographer because uh, wherever you're stationed, you'll be working in air conditioned spaces. 
on on any ship. You'll you'll never be on a little bitty ship. You'll always be on a carrier battleship or something. So when I got to boot camp in Orlando, eventually they have a have a career counselor talk to you, and it kind of helps determine what your future is going to be. And I he, and my friend who was at, by then was at the Bureau of Naval Personnel at the Pentagon. He told me what to tell the, the uh, career counselor. And the key word was uh, bag my orders. So I told the chief, uh, would you bag my orders? And he said, oh, so you know how this works? And I said, yeah, I do. He goes, sure, no problem. So when my paperwork got to the Pentagon, my buddy got me orders to photo school. So when the company commander gave us out our orders towards the end of boot camp, and he told me, or he said to me, uh, how the hell did you get orders to photo school? Nobody gets those orders. I said, oh, you know how the Navy works. So uh, I went to photo school and I didn't know that the Blue Angels were based in Pensacola. I guess I had never even thought about it. I had seen the Blues fly before and I was a pilot already. I had become a pilot when I was in college and had done quite a bit of photography, aerial photography. And in the course of going through Navy photo school, I had, I had gone out to the flight line and shot some pictures of the Blues and saw them come and go every week. I hadn't, didn't think anything about it. Well, I got time to, to graduate from photo school. In the meantime, I had I thought I knew a lot about motion pictures because I had been involved with it before I was out of college. And so I asked the school if instead of coming back to motion picture school, could I audit the motion picture school and then get credit for it? Uh, and they said, well, sure, we'll give you an oral exam. And so they did. And I and I got the equivalent of a B school by uh, being qualified already. So it meant that I had a job code that permitted me to have a billet where I would be doing motion picture photography. And there's not a lot of those. At the time, there weren't a lot of those billets. Most of them were in combat camera and, you know, uh, a few things like that. And so I had, I requested combat camera East and I got, and I was, you know, the top 10% of the class got to choose where they went. So I got to choose uh, where I was going to go and I chose combat camera. And it was uh, six months a year in Little Creek, Virginia, and then six months in Naples, Italy, and then back to Virginia, and then back to Naples. Oh, man, this will be great. And the job was to document everything that went on from the middle of the United States all the way around to the other side of the world. And and Vietnam was not in the picture for the East East Coast camera unit. So I was ready to go. I had my orders, and I got a message to go down and see the training officer, this captain. And I went down to see him and he said, uh, I've got another job opening, a billet that uh, you might like. And I thought that if you uh, if you wanted to go interview for it and they want you, we'll change your orders. And I said, well, yeah, well, what is it? And he said, well, the Blues have asked us to recommend someone to come to the team. They'd never had a full-time photographer. They occasionally would get a photographer attached to the team. But when Harley Hall got there, he decided that they needed a regular public affairs operation and so they needed a journalist, they needed a, a draftsman who could do artistic stuff, and then they needed a, a photographer. So I went out and interviewed with Dick Schramm, and when I interviewed with him, uh, they just come off the road. I think I interviewed with him the same day that he got back. And Dick Schramm was the, the number eight pilot at the time? Well, he was, yeah, he was number eight. He was public affairs officer. Gotcha. And, and J.D. Davis was number seven. And so uh, while I was being interviewed, he fell asleep. And so I thought, well, I didn't go very well. And um, so I went back to the school on the base and uh, waited around. And then a couple of days later, uh, the training officer called me into his office. He says, well, they want you and they're going to get you orders. And the blues can get orders for someone with just a phone call. I mean, it's, it's very simple. I mean, I don't know about now, but in those days, we were a flag unit. We were not a squadron. And we reported to a three-star admiral in Corpus Christi. So... Anything we wanted, we got instantly. So I waited around. I didn't get any orders, didn't get any orders, didn't get any orders. And so finally, the training officer said, just go after the hangar, hang around in their space. And when they get back off the road, you'll be there. And Skip Umstead was flying number six, and he was the personnel officer for the team at the time. And so when they got back, he saw me and goes, I got to get you orders. So that day I had orders, and I, so I moved my stuff into the barracks on the base that the blues used you know I first thing i guess one of the first things i don't remember exactly but i had to go get qualified to fly in a jet 
So I went down and did the pressure chamber and ejection seat, seat qualifications so I could go up in the Phantom. About that time, it was grandfather, and I'm sure you know who grandfather was, Dave Shorrier. He was the Grumman tech rep, and he was still on the he was still with the team, even though we weren't flying Grumman aircraft anymore. He'd been there forever. So it was his birthday. And so in the coffee mess, we were having a birthday party. And so it turns out that Bill and Corky Fornoff were there too, and they had a pair of F8F Bearcats that they flew in air shows. And they were in Pensacola. And Somebody got the idea that, you know what, we ought to go up with five and six and the two Bearcats and fly diamond formation with the two Bearcats and the two Phantoms. Jim Maslowski was flying number three at the time. So, and I didn't know any of these guys yet. I mean, I was just fresh there. I'd never been up in a, and I'd flown a lot, but I'd never been in a military aircraft like the Phantom. So uh, grab your camera. We're going to go up and shoot. So it was May, first part of May. And so we went up and it was hot and, uh, you know, everything was strange in the aircraft. and The smells, uh, you know, it's a different, whole different environment. So we went up and we, we shot pictures and I got some decent pictures. And then there was a lot of fuel left. The, the Bearcats had to leave for Homa, Louisiana. And so here you had three Phantoms up there with lots of fuel on board. And so it was time to chase each other through the clouds, you know five and six, and then number three, weaving around. And I started getting air sick. Uh, the air conditioning system in a Phantom is, you know, you got a, well, I say I made a three or $4 million aircraft with about a $1.98 air conditioner. And it'll either throw ice cubes at you or hot air. Uh, Lieutenant Maslowski, I told him I was getting a little bit air sick. And so he turned the air conditioning down real cold. And... Eventually, we ran, you know, got time to go back to the base, and we landed. And boy, I'll tell you, it was everything I could do to keep keep from uh, throwing up. And we got on the ground, and and you know, you don't ever open the rear cockpit canopy until the front canopy is open, and the pilot's out of the plane and on the ground. So we did that, and by then, I it was beyond being able to hold it in any longer. And I mean, I, you know, the term we used in the blues for throwing up was selling Buicks. I sold Buicks all over that cockpit, got it in my boom mic, my camera gear. Oh, what a mess. And so <laughs> the crew chief climbed up there and told me to uh, take my time and no problem. And then, uh, uh, and I couldn't get out. I was so weak and I, I thought I would fall and you know kill myself hitting the ground. So I stayed in a cockpit for a while. And then I went up and I laid down on the floor in the ready room, propped my feet up. And after a couple of hours, I went back out to the airplane and the crew had put wet rags all over all of this mess in the cockpit. And so I spent the rest of the afternoon cleaning my mess up. That was the only time in four years that I had that problem. Now you spent a lot of your time shooting photography out of the back of number seven, J.D. Davis's aircraft. Can you tell me about working with J.D. Davis? And do you have any stories about a photo shoot that you shot with J.D. Davis? In the beginning, it was a little difficult because, you know, you don't know your relationship. You know, the Navy system between the officer and enlisted is is pretty well known and and I had just arrived and I, I didn't know how this was going to work but we you know we would talk and we did a little bit of pre-planning when we would go out on a photo mission but JD had a pretty good eye for where we ought to be uh, the only time that uh, we we did at winter training that first year we would fly not every day, but we flew with the diamond a lot. And we would follow them around their maneuvers. Like if they did a diamond loop, we would fly outside the loop so I could get pictures of the diamond. And I've got a couple of well-published photos that I took at the top, looking down at El Centro, down on the diamond. You know, we honed those skills. And then, you know, we did a photo mission up in New York, flying by the Statue of Liberty. And that turned out great, except the shoreline of New Jersey looked really lousy. We fixed that with uh, Photoshop didn't exist, but we had a processing lab airbrush out all of the crap off of the New Jersey shoreline so we could make a lithograph out of that. But when we went to Japan, we did a photo mission uh, over Mount Fuji. And I mean, this worked out great because what happened, we were in Misawa, a U.S. Air Force base in northern Japan. And the next day we were going to Atsugi and, and Mount Fuji is pretty close to Atsugi. We flew down the day before from Masawa down to Atsugi. 
And so JD wanted to know because of fuel considerations, he wanted to know how far from the mountain we needed to be and where the formation ought to be and all this. We could tell a skipper. In the in the Navy, uh, the symbol for a photographer in the Navy is called a, a an IFGA. I F G A. It's a little, little symbol that's on the on your uniform. <clears throat> well, I F G A is the formula for figuring out the size of images on the film and the lens distance from the lens and how far to the subject matter and all that. So I calculated how far from Mount Fuji we needed to be, and also calculated how far the formation needed to be from us relative to the mountain. And so uh, we rendezvoused out there, and and JD used the tack hand to set our distances, and we orbited around Mount Fuji a couple of times, and I shot both color and black and white, and got a fabulous picture of the, of the delta in front of Mount Fuji, and we made a lithograph out of it. So that was an example of a, a, a you know, a, a coordinated effort on the part of the pilot and the photographer. And it was a difficult airplane to shoot out of because the cockpit rails were up high. And if you raised your seat up, your, can't, your helmet would hit the top of the canopy before you could get the lens up above the cockpit rails. So what I would do is I would take off my helmet and put on a headset. And that way I could raise the seat up higher and I could shoot. And you can't have your camera touch the plane anywhere or the vibration ruins the picture. And I was shooting with Kodachrome, which is film speed was ASA 25. So a slow, but a fabulous film. And so it worked out great. And um, so then he left the team after that. And uh, after that year, you know, I flew with the other number sevens. Gary Smith was my favorite because we had a T to Buckeye most of the time while he was there. And he would let me fly it because he had dual controls. And so he would let me fly as much as I wanted to, even land. I remember the first time I ever, he let me ever land that plane was down at Tampa at the Air Force Base down there. And uh, he was hollering at me the whole time about the angle of attack. And as a civilian pilot, you don't ever fly using angle. I, I was never taught about angle of attack. I just wanted to grease the landing on, and he wanted me to make a carrier landing. So, But he was a great guy. Great. And backing up to 1970, you guys had some epic trips, including to Panama, Quito, Ecuador, and Hawaii. What are your memories from those trips? Oh, they were great. But I flew to Ecuador on the uh, on the Super Connie, the C-121, and we took the C-130 with us, too. We had both aircraft at that time. That's right, because I believe 1970 was the first year for Fat Albert on the Blue Angels, if I'm not mistaken. In the beginning, Fat Albert was, wasn't named yet. I'll tell you about that in a minute. So I flew down on the Super Connie. And, and the airfield at Quito, Ecuador, where we went in, well, we stopped in Panama on the way. And we did an air show in Panama. And we did it in the rain. And it stripped all the paint off the leading edges. And so we had everyone out there repainting those airplanes to get ready to leave for Ecuador the next day. So we had all hands turned out. Some of us were putting, you know, taping off the tails to put the numbers on. And it was all hands effort. We got it done, though. And so we, we flew into Quito and in the, in the airfield there's at about 10,000 feet. So you got to go over the Indies Mountains. And I still remember that uh, the engines on there are, uh, I mean, I think the total number of engines, uh, cylinders, 112 cylinders on a Superconic. So you got 112 pistons. Well, every one of those has got to work and uh, to get over the mountains. And so we, we, anyway, we got in there fine. And the C-130, of course, had no problems getting in there. So we, we, we were there and we did the air show there and we did an air show in Guayaquil. And we, we had an incident with, uh, we flew down to Guayaquil. We put uh, the, air, the starting units on the C-130 and there were only about six or seven of us on the plane. We went down there and we filled up the fuel tanks on the, on the air start units, the huffers. At altitude, we got up to altitude, we were at about 20 or 29,000 feet, and we broke a fitting in one of the wings and we lost pressurization. And so we had to do a, take a walk around bottle to feed oxygen, you know, let everybody breathe. But those fuel tanks started spraying jet fuel all over the cargo compartment of this 130. And as soon as that started happening, I realized that, you know what, we got all kinds of electronics back here, dynamotors running. If we get the right fuel air mixture, we're just going to be a ball of fire in the sky. We don't. So we opened the ramp to, you know, let fresh air come in and blow all the fumes out. So we flew that way. And I had 
because I am a musician and had played so many years, my lungs have better capacity. And so I had no problems being up there. And, but I so I walked the bottle around with the oxygen for the other guys. Um, some of them had blue, you know, fingernails were blue. And, but uh, anyway, it was a pretty exciting trip. And then we came back and almost immediately went to Hawaii. And we spent uh, about a week out there. We did about five shows, I think. We did uh, Waikiki Beach. We did Kaneohe Bay, Schofield Barracks, another Army base. But we, we spent about a week there. And, and uh, boy, it was a great time. And uh, got to meet Don Ho. And in fact, I played in his band a little bit while we were there. Um, and uh, he was playing at the hotel. We were staying at the Reef Towers Hotel. And he was doing his nighttime show there. And that's how I ended up meeting him. So, And a lot of those trips you just spoke about were actually documented in the wonderful documentary, Threshold, The Blue Angels Experience. You actually helped that crew film that documentary. Is that right? Yeah, I did. Uh, Dave Gardner and, uh, and Paul Marlowe, and they followed us around for almost two years and they rode on our C-130 with us and they had full access. I helped them with, you know, mounting cameras on the planes. We had a camera pod built and I helped them with that stuff and, um, you know, any way I could. And they were very generous. Uh, they gave me a Nikon, uh, FTN after it was all over. Plus, um, Bantam Books published a book about the movie, and I supplied a lot of the photographs for the book that was going to be sold in the lobbies of theaters. Yeah, well, Threshold was such a great movie into giving insight into that actual F4 Phantom era, as well as your photos. And one of your photos has actually gone viral over the internet uh, pretty much for the last couple decades. Since the, since the internet's been around, there's that famous photo of Ernie Christensen in a gear-up landing in Cedar Rapids, Iowa in 1970. Talk to me about shooting that photo uh, especially knowing that it's someone that you work so closely with and probably someone you care about in such a precarious position and still being able to snap that photo. I had been on the on the uh, roof of the terminal building with a motion picture photographer from Collins Radio. That's the company that I had worked for and was still on leave while I was in the Navy. So we were shooting and the weather was lousy. And that's what caused the team to land individually. And there was no taxiway, so it was, you know, you had to land and go to the end of the runway and then back taxi, come back to the terminal building. So one, two, and three had landed, and uh, Dick Schramm was on the radio, and number four made his approach, came out of the clouds, made his approach, and you could see that his gear was not down. And so we had a, we had one of the crew out at the end of the runway with a pistol, a, you know, flare. I ran down, and we had a Navy station wagon right, right there, and I ran down, took the picture, and then jumped in the station wagon. By then, Ernie had ejected and landed on the runway, and his plane went off, fortunately went off to the side of the runway and did not hit the other three aircraft, which were already on the ground at the end of the runway. So it went down through a bar ditch, across a taxiway, on into a cornfield, and caused a fire over there. So I drove up to Ernie, and he got in the back, and first thing he said to me was, do you have a cigarette? And I'm not a smoker, so I didn't have a cigarette, but somebody gave him a cigarette. But he was okay. So I took him back to the terminal, and then I went out where the fire was going on and shot some motion picture film of the fire department trying to put the fire out on, on the plane. But they, did, they didn't have any experience with how to put a fire out on a plane like that. So the plane was didn't burn up completely, and they wanted to see the rapids, wanted to keep it and put it on a pedestal, but the Navy didn't let them have it. So I have a couple of pictures of it sitting on the ground after it was retrieved and brought back and put between a couple of hangers. But that, that plane was a strike. And Ernie Christensen, a legend in the Navy, went on to have a fantastic career after the Blue Angels. Yeah, Mo yeah, sure, Dad. And moving on, some of the photos I really love that you took are from that end of season show, I believe maybe 1971 at Nellis Air Force Base. The Blue Angels did a joint air show with the Air Force Thunderbirds, who were also in the F-4 Phantom at the time. You captured some great pictures, including Boss Harley Hall and Skip Umstead with Frank Sinatra. Tell me about that end of season show. Well, you know, it was great. We had just returned from our Far East trip. We'd been gone for two months. It was our 25th reunion. And so the Thunderbirds hosted our 25th reunion, and they made all the hotel arrangements and 
uh, they put us up the desert inn and they had cars for us and it was just a fabulous um, time there. We did a joint show there at, at Nellis, but you know, a lot of people think the teams have a big rivalry. Well, they don't. They're each other's biggest rooters. And you know, the maneuvers are not exactly the same and the philosophy, the Navy's philosophy and the Air Force philosophy of how to fly are different. And so you kind of see the best of both worlds if you're a spectator out seeing both teams fly. Then we had a banquet and Ernest Borgnine, who was an honorary Blue Angel, he was there. He had a, a guy with him and nobody knew who he was. And I was at a eight-top table, real close to the head table, and there was a lady right to my right-hand side. I didn't know who she was. Ernest Borgnine said, before I do my speech, I've got a friend I brought with me, and he's a big, he loves naval aviation, and I just want to give him a chance to say something. So he got up to the podium, and he started talking, and we thought he was drunk. And he was slurring his words, and his hands were slipping off of the podium. And I looked at his wife. She was the wife of that guy. And she had a big smile on her face. I go, something's wrong here. It turned out to be Foster Brooks. I mean, he brought, and after a while, it was so funny that people couldn't keep from laughing. I mean, they were embarrassed for him, but then they realized that this was, that was his deal. So we had a, it was a great reunion. Uh, The Thunderbirds treated us. They have a restroom that's dedicated to the Blue Angels in the Thunderbird hangar, the the Blue Room, and it's all decorated in, in Blue Angel stuff. Plus, the two teams give things back and forth to each other. We gave them a toilet with the bombers coming up out of the toilet bowl, the phantoms coming up, and we, we built it in our public affairs office in, in Pensacola. And so a guy named Dave Summers was the my counterpart with the Thunderbirds. And so he and I traded patches and airplanes and stuff. And so I got the airplanes, and then our guys built it, our draftsmen, our and in Virgil Sigley, he built this bomb burst coming out of the toilet and the toilet was, you know, red and white and blue. And so we took it out there and gave it, gave it to them. And they gave us, uh, 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 they had a mannequin, a female mannequin that was, I can't remember for sure. It was called the Virgin Blue or something. Anyway, it was given to us at a casino. And I remember walking down the strip with that mannequin over my shoulder, taking it back to our hotel so we could bring it, bring it home. But uh, they send, they give these to each other every year, back and forth. They go back and forth, back and forth. So that reunion happening at the very end of 1971, 1971 being Boss Hall's very last year as leader of the Blue Angels. Can you talk to me about your personal relationship with Boss Harley Hall? Well, it was a real enigma. You know, he, he was certainly a squared away sailor. And, you know, I've heard people, I knew, I have a friend who was on a carrier with him. And he said, you could look down on the flight deck from, the island, and you could pick him out of the crowd because he was, you know, he had white laces and his flight boots, and he was very squared away. And he was that way when he was on the team, too. He was a model officer and was deep selected for captain, and, you know, he made commander early, and uh, he was just what the team needed after the 69 season because there are all kinds of issues mostly due to the transition from the F-11 to the F-4. But he he brought people to the team that he had been with in the F-4 outfit, you know, like Chief Bennington and Guy Gafria. Uh, we haven't talked about him yet, but he was a first class uh, and r- was the front man uh, most of the time on the road. He brought those people from the fleet who really were experts with Phantoms. And we had a fabulous maintenance officer in Mac Pros. And, you know, um, we never missed a show. Um, you know, it was very seldom we ever even had to fly a five-plane show. A couple of times where we had a problem with a plane after in, being in the air or maybe on taxi out. But, um, you know, it really was a – 70 was a year of, of, of really uh, improved performance. And then 71 was even better. I mean, we did a lot of shows. We flew from winter training all the way through. Um, I mean, we were in Guam on Thanksgiving, and we didn't have our end-of-the-season show and reunion in de- till in December. So, I mean, we flew a lot, a lot of shows that year. We were on the, on the road a lot. Do you have any good Harley Hall stories or stories about anyone from that 1971 team? Well, you know, he was so squared away 
but I mean, I know that he probably, and I, and I am not trying to get in his mind, but I'm sure that he was, he figured he was running kind of a daycare center for <laughs> young pilots because, you know, I was older than the pilots were for the most part. I wasn't older than Harley, but those guys were 26, 27 years old. And I was about 27 years old. Most of them were real jokers and were never shied away from a practical joke or something, you know. Bill Beardsley, was, I remember him being told, that Harley had told him, I hope you have a squadron someday and that they're all just like you. <laughs> His, he had a trick for being able to fall down staircases, you know, head over heels. When he was introduced at our Christmas party, when he was selected to come to the team, he came to our Christmas party in Pensacola. And no one knew him yet, hadn't been introduced. And so Harley introduced him and he walked up to the stage. When he got to the stage, he tripped and fell. And his glasses flew off. And he got up with his glasses. He had this, put his glasses on crooked and he had this sheepish look on his face. Well, nobody realized that that was his deal. He did that. And later on, as a Delta Airlines pilot, he would do that, come out of the cockpit and stumble and fall down the aisle. He, he was, you know, just great. Just great. Hilarious story. Circling back to Boss Hall really quick, he actually had an ejection in 1971 in Rhode Island. You were there that day. You actually documented the aftermath of the ejection. Tell me about how scary that was and your memories from that day. Well, it was kind of crazy because there were two accidents up there that weekend. Bill Fornoff was killed. His, uh, the wing on his F-8F came off in a recovery from a loop, and he hit the ground right in front of the center point, hit a right off of a missile site. And then, you know, the team was doing a practice show. So when he, when the fire started on his aircraft, Jim Maslowski flew up and saw where the problem was. So, you know, told him that he was on fire. And so uh, he tried to bring it back and land it. But uh, it got, you know, I, I assume he lost, lost hydraulic control. And so he punched out. And the plane went in there against the bay. And so the McDonnell Douglas tech rep and I, Bill uh, Pritchett, he and I ran over to the SAR helicopter that was there. And we thought we would ride out with the helicopter to pick him up. Well, they couldn't get the blades unfolded on the SAR helicopter. So the Navy helicopter, rescue helicopter, never got airborne. There was an aircraft carrier based, and I think it was the Kearsarge. I'm not sure about that, but it was home ported there in Quonset Point, Rhode Island. And they, their captain's barge didn't get out there. And there was a fisherman out there. And the fisherman picked Harley up and brought him back into the dock. And we were over there when he came up to the dock. And he, he had recovered his helmet. And he was dumping the water out of his shoes whenever we got over there. And uh, we, tr we fished out parts of that airplane. Uh, the Navy had a diving crew there. And I went out with the diving crew. And they, they retrieved some of the pieces and parts off of the airplane that we were interested in retrieving. The front axle and the front tires became part of the roll-off carts to put on the C-130 for our baggage and stuff. Moving on to the 1972 air show season, you had a brand new boss and boss Don Bentley. I don't feel like there's much in Blue Angel history that's documented the 1972 season all that well. So why don't you tell me about working for boss Don Bentley and, and do you have any stories from that 1972 season? Really nice guy. Completely different personality than Harley Hall. Winter training went kind of like it had the year before in the same routine. And then we hit the road and we did the typical, you know, we didn't have any overseas. We might've gone to amateur Canada, but we didn't have any shows outside the country that year. We did have an accident in Kinston, North Carolina uh, with um, landing to, short of the runway. And it was real muddy and uh, Don uh, got off to the left side of the runway in the mud and tried to get airborne. It did. It hit a taxiway. It kind of jumped up in the air, but it went didn't get to flying. Went back into the mud again. So that's when he ejected. The plane was headed right for Fat Albert. And there was uh, six of our guys in an Air Force crew cab pickup parked right there. So they saw the plane coming and they jumped out of the pickup and ran. And it's a good thing they did because that airplane got right on top of that pickup and they find where it all came to a rest. There's that Air Force pickup right underneath that Phantom sitting there right behind Fat Albert. It came so close to, uh, to hitting. 
But uh, Don was fine and the airplane was fine. They flew it down to Cherry Point and refurbished it. And it was back with the team after a while and uh, no worse for the wear. And uh, so the season went on and then we went to winter training and we had um, a three plane midair collision uh, during the uh, trail loop. And to clarify, that's actually at the beginning of the 1973 air show season. Yeah, the beginning of 73. Yep. They were doing a trail loop and uh, number three got into number two. Number two got into number one. Number four got out of the way, saw what was going on. I believe what happened was the fuel line was severed on Don Bentley's aircraft. Because he eventually flamed out and ejected. But number two and number three, they both ejected almost immediately. And those two planes crashed on the desert out there, I don't know, a mile apart, maybe. One of them kept flying upside down. We had a videographer out there. You know, we, we videotaped every practice. He could hear it, and he looked behind him, and it was coming towards him, flying upside down with a tail cutting a trench in the sand. And there's a narrow-gauge railroad that runs right by the practice area that goes to a gypsum mine. And so it's on a roadbed that's up about three or four feet up to the des- off the desert floor. When that aircraft hit that railroad right away, it came apart and the turbines on the engines kept going for a couple of miles. Those planes were, you know, completely destroyed. And um, so ben- Don Bentley headed towards the base, but, you know, he was probably at a thousand or two thousand feet or something like that. Anyway, he ran out of fuel and he ejected and he was hurt in the injection in the, during the ejection. Um, Initially, his hand, and then when he was back in flight status, his back started hurting. He realized his back was hurt, too, during the ejection. So that's when Skip Umstead was brought back to the team. Uh, he'd been here three years already and was brought back for the fourth year. No doubt, 73 gets off to a really rough start. And in addition to this trail loop crash, you guys also learn about the shootdown of Harley Hall, your former boss. He shot down in Vietnam on the very last day of the conflict, January 27th, 1973. Do you recall where you were when you heard this news and the effect that it actually had on the team? Well, I don't know for sure how we found out about it. Uh, well, you know, if anybody was, we always, we thought, I think, Almost everybody on the team figured if anybody could survive captivity, he could, because he was so strong-willed and so organized and so focused that, you know, the kind of person, kind of personality could withstand that environment, being a POW. And I didn't think, you know, and I think we kind of had an idea that the war was drawn to a close, because sometime around there, I remember going over to San Diego to see some of the POWs were brought back to San Diego instead of San Francisco. And I went over to to, uh, Miramar to see these guys uh, come off the transports. And uh, so we we had a sense that the war was over and he'd be coming back with the POWs. And, uh, you know, uh, we were surprised that he didn't come back. And it's so unfortunate. And it is really Harley's story. And, and obviously my grandfather, who was Butch Forrest, but it's really Harley and his story, uh, why the Blue Angels mean so much to me. It was his sacrifice that he paid. And and most people don't know, Harley Hall is not the only Blue Angel that was shot down and killed in Vietnam. There was also Herb Hunter, who lost his life in Vietnam, and Clarence Tolbert. And before them, in the Korean conflict, it was actually the leader of the Blue Angels at the time, Johnny Magda, was shot down and killed in 1950. And that's actually what brought my grandfather back to the team in 1952 when they brought him back to the United States. So the Blue Angels are awesome. They do amazing things. But, you know, really, it's those individuals that are in the cockpit and what they stand for and what they're willing to put on the line, to me, is what makes them so special. So uh, anyway, moving on. Skip Umstead returns to the team to replace Don Bentley for the 1973 season. Talk to me about Skip Umstead. Yeah, he was a fabulous skipper. He he was just, first of all, one of the most, uh, one of the finest officers I ever met in the Navy. And, uh, you know, he, I would, he and I were pretty good friends. I knew his family pretty well. And when he would, when he was flying solo, his family showed up at a lot of shows and I took a lot of pictures of them. And, you know, you kind of, you can't help but get to know these people. And he was just a, fabulous individual. And I'll tell you, his death had a huge impact on me. 
I remember at his funeral in Pensacola, he's buried at, at Barrancas National Cemetery. I went out there to, you know, I went to the chapel, first of all, to shoot pictures of the service. And then I went out to the cemetery and uh, it was just too much for me. I, I just, I couldn't do it. And uh, I spent most of the time at the cemetery crying. He, he was such a fabulous individual. Um, I, you know, it's difficult for me to even talk about him without tearing up. He, he was such a, such a great loss. And to give listeners context here, 1973 was the last year the Blue Angels flew the F-4 Phantom. They suffered a terrible accident that ended up taking the lives of three team members in Lakehurst, New Jersey that summer. Ron, we definitely don't need to go in detail or, or talk about it, but if you're open to it, you know, do you have any memories from that day in 1973? Well, you know, it was one of those deals where everything that could go wrong went wrong. First of all, uh, team landed at uh, Oceana, Virginia to refuel. Number two had a fuel leak, so didn't launch to go to Lakehurst. So number four, Mike, Michael Murphy, he moved over to right wing. And so when they did the arrival show at Lakehurst, the wind was blowing like hell. And there's an open area in the forest there where, you know, the Navy parachute training is at Lakehurst or was, I don't know if it is still, but it was then. And so they had an area that was clear cut so that, you know, the jumpers could land in a place in an area where there were no trees. So in recovering from a maneuver, the idea was to recover at the bottom of the, of the recovery in that place where there weren't any trees. But since the wind was blowing, the whole formation drifted and ended up bottoming out, bottoming out, bottoming out right at the tree line. So number four was in the trees and, you know, number three was clear of the trees and number one was clear of the trees. So, but they were so close to the ground that there was no, there wasn't any way to pull up quicker. And it's one of those situations where you know, energy management um, got the best of them. And there was no way out. There was, it was a situation, uh, and only number three got out, was able to get out of the way because there were no trees on, on his side. And number four would have, you know, if number two had been with the formation, who knows, they might not have lined up that same way. I mean, it's hard to say what would have happened if all four planes would have been there. But uh, uh, Ron Thomas, who was the crew chief on number four, he ejected and hit the tail. And my memory's a little foggy, but I believe what happened was that he hit the tail of number one on his when he ejected. Um, and then... Mike Murphy, Michael Murphy, I don't believe that he ever initiated his ejection. I don't remember for sure. I mean, I didn't see the accident report. So I don't know what officially was decided. And I may be completely wrong, but I just believe from observation that that's what happened. It's just my opinion. So anyway, that was the end of the Phantom era. There weren't, there weren't any more Phantoms left. That block of Phantoms, that J model that never had been in the fleet as a fleet aircraft, it was it always had a lead nose, never had any radar in it. There weren't enough of them left to fly six airplanes. And we never had a spare anyway. So when we would lose an airplane, they would have to pull one from somewhere else and give it to us. And a lot of times we had a Marine F-4 that was not a not painted up blue. So number seven would fly a Marine F-4 that was from the fleet. So definitely a terrible time for the Blue Angels. Did that also mark the end of your career with the Blue Angels as well? Yeah, uh, I had my departure all worked at my, I was out, my last day was the 26th of September. And so I spent the last two months there at the hangar, just, you know, doing miscellaneous stuff. Because uh, this happened about two two months before my departure date. I was supposed to be gone a year and a half before that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there's a couple things I want to go back and right behind me here, there's that picture of Mount Fuji. And that 
one of the things that was one of the great best things ever happened. We were going over. I was on a KC-135, and I got to fly the boom to re refuel the skipper. It's Harley Hall's plane right there. So the boomer let me down in his space so I could take pictures, and he let me fly the boom and take pictures at the same time. So I got to take pictures up there at 28 or 29,000 feet going to Guam from Hawaii to Guam. It's great. Yeah, your photos have done such a great job of preserving the history of the Blue Angels and the F-4 Phantom. There was another photographer during that time period, and I believe he's actually an honorary blue, unfortunately no longer with us, but Harry Gann. His photos are also out there on the internet today. His son, Russell, very friendly and generous with sharing uh, those photos online and allowing me to use them in, in videos on the Blue Angel Phantom YouTube channel. Did you know Harry, and w what did you think of him? Oh, yeah. He and I were good friends. In fact, I got married in California before I got out of the Navy and he came to my wedding. And yeah, he, he was uh, he'd been around Douglas Aircraft forever. He was. I don't think his title was spy photographer, but his one of his jobs was to nose around the industry and see what was going on and get capture pictures, of, you know, what the competition was up to. But he was great to be around because he knew everybody and we hung around together. He, he was a great guy and, and, and a fabulous photographer. I really enjoyed uh, having him as a friend. And he did come and fly with us occasionally. Um, uh, I remember how many times, maybe three or four times while I was on the team, he came and flew with us. I recently read a beautiful tribute you wrote to one of your friends who was Guy Gafria, who was Harley Hall's crew chief during your tenure on the Blue Angels. Tell me about Guy. It seems that uh, he had quite the sense of humor. Guy... He was from Mississippi, but when people would ask, and he had a really heavy duty accent, and when people would ask him where he's from, he would say, Maine. I'm from Maine. And then he would get a double take and he says, I'm from the Maine part of Mississippi. But he would call home every week and he would call, per, uh, cl uh, call collect person to person for his brother, Boudreaux. <laughs> and so his wife would answer the phone. And his wife was ex Miss Hawaii in Miss America. So she would say, well, your brother's next door. Let me go get him. And so while she's off the phone, Guy's on the phone with the operator, telling her everything about the, where he is and the weather and everything's growing great and all that. Meanwhile, his wife is listening to all this down there in Pensacola. And then when he was done telling all about where he was and how everything is, she would come back and say, well, I can't find him. You're going to have to call back later. So they never paid for a long distance phone call. <laughs> And he, I witnessed him one day try to call Nikita Khrushchev. And he got all the way to an operator somewhere in the Soviet Union. But that was one of his favorite things to do. And he, you know, I think I, in the book, uh, Phantoms and Angels, I think I told about this. But uh, when I got on the team, one of the first shows we went to was uh, Corpus Christi. And the team, like I say, the team had never had a full-time photographer. So we're in Corpus Christi and I, I was the, you know, the new guy on the team and I got assigned to uh, smoke and dye crew and polishing canopies and stuff like that. So he walked up to me down there and he said, boy, it must be nice to have a hobby you can do in the Navy, re you know, referring to my photography. And I thought, well, that was, you know, that wasn't nice. But I realized later that he was such a good natured guy and he was always yanking your chain and he didn't mean anything bad by that. He just was wanting to get to be friends. And we were we were close friends before before uh, he or I, either one, left the team. He made chief before he got out of the Navy. And he died, unfortunately, about 12 years ago. Um, he had a blood disease and was on blood thinners and hit his head and had a cerebral hemorrhage, hemorrhage and uh, passed away in a couple of days. And I went down and gave the eulogy. Um, he, he, he was uh, just a remarkable individual. Um, and then our chief, Tom Bennington, you know, I wrote a piece about, uh, for the book too, um, Phantoms and Angels. Uh, Tom was kind of like Mikhail's Navy. You know, he was like Ernest Borgnine. You know, you didn't screw with him. Um, you could, you could fool around with the other chiefs, you know, you could throw them in the swimming pool. You could, you know, play pranks on them, but not Tom. Uh, everybody always wanted Tom's respect. And he was just a fabulous chief. And he's, he's still around. He lives in Florida. Great guy. Got into politics after he retired. Um, 
up in Indiana and then retired down to Florida and just a super nice guy and uh, a best friend. Just, I can't say enough about him. Uh, super nice guy. Yeah, I had the great privilege of meeting Tom Bennington at the 2018 Homecoming Blue Angels Air Show in Pensacola. Now, circling back to Guy, one thing I really love is there's the one phantom that's actually painted in Blue Angel colors that's on display at a airport in Cleveland. I believe it's Burke Front Lake Airport. It actually has Guy Gafria's name on the back canopy rail uh, right behind Harley Halls, which I think is just an awesome tribute. Yeah, and one of the reasons it's there is... Uh... The guy who was public affairs officer after Dick Schramm was Chuck Newcomb. And Chuck, in his life after the Navy, managed the Cleveland National Air Show for a long time and arranged for those two Phantoms to be mounted at the front gate there at Burke Lake Front. And so he and Guy were very close friends. In fact, Guy worked for us when we were managing air shows. Guy worked for us up in Atlantic City, uh, running the line and uh, uh, and so they were close friends too. And I'm pretty sure Chuck arranged for his name to be put on that canopy. So Ron, you actually mentioned one of my favorite books, Phantoms and Angels. It actually has a lot of your photography in it. Yeah. It's a coffee table book and, uh, um, a doctor from Harvard medical school put the book together. He's a, he was a phantom nut. And he called me one day here in, uh, in Dallas and uh, he had heard, I think, from Richard, Rich Keen that I had, you know, that I had a lot of photographs. And I do. I have 25 or 30,000 photographs of the blues, the Phantom Era. He, he called me and I invited him to come. He was coming down to the Fort Worth Air Show where the blues were flying. I invited him to come to my office and we spent three or four hours talking about the blues. And so I had digitized all of the best photos and I let him pick and choose what he wanted to use. It's a great book, and I really think it is one of the most comprehensive histories of the Blue Angels in the F4 Phantom, obviously with the exception of my podcast and YouTube channel. Uh, just kidding. I actually use that book to do a tremendous amount of research for this channel and for this podcast. But, uh, Ron, what other stories do you have for me today? I need to back up a little bit. When I got to the team, Harley had decided to establish a public affairs office, and so they got a journalist, they got a photographer and a draftsman, and we didn't even have a place to sit down. There wasn't a desk, there was nothing. So right next door to the Blue Angel Spaces, there was a, an empty hospital. And it had, you know, a lot of showers, toilets, uh, examining rooms, and had a lock on the door. So I got a bolt cutter one day, went over there and cut the lock off the door, went there and looked around and, man, this would make a great public affairs office. We could build a photo lab here and print processing and all that. And then there's room next door for the, and we didn't have the C-130 yet. And when they got here, they could take the space next door. So we didn't tell anybody. Uh, so Steve Kapler, the journalist, he'd been with the CBs before the blues. And so he and I, we went over there with sledgehammers and we completely broke up every toilet, every urinal, shower, everything. And we knocked a hole in the side of the hangar and I had the dumpster company move the dumpster over on the, down on the ground under that hole and we scooped everything up and threw it out that hole and it went down in the dumpster. And so we, we cleaned out all of that hospital till it was bare and we completely, we painted it. We built the rooms we needed. Uh, we got our Grumman tech rep. He, uh, I don't know if you've run into the term com shop, but in the Navy, that's where you trade stuff. Like you can trade a flight jacket for a big piece of mahogany at the museum. If you need to make a bar top. Or sunglasses, aviator sunglasses are good for, oh, I don't know, maybe a new set of tires down at the tire store. So Dave was a master at that. And so he arranged for a flooring company to come in and put in a blue floor for us. We went out in the paint locker and we discovered the only thing in there was white and highway stripe yellow. So we painted, we wainscoted the public affairs office yellow. And then the upper part was white. And so we built this public affairs office and we had a sign outside the door that said Blue Angels Agency. And uh, we'd occupied that thing for, I guess, a couple of years. And some civilian came in there one day and he was obviously from a plant department and was trying to figure out who was occupying what space. And he said, how long have you all been in here? And so... 
I was talking to him. And I said, well, it was this way when I got here. So they just started charging the team a little more rent for the hangar space. And that that's where the where the public affairs office was. Plus, next door, the Marines moved in there when they got there. The other thing that happened uh, relative to my time there, we got the C-130. You know, it wasn't called Fat Albert or anything, but the Marines started referring to the plane as Albert. And I got to thinking one day, well, you know what? This is the airplane that flies us around like an airline. We should call this airplane Fat Albert Airlines. And so I talked to Bill Clausen, who was the uh, narrator, was the navigator. We talked to the the Marine who was in charge of the detachment there. And everybody agreed. And so I got, we got Skip Mulchler, who was our draftsman. He was second class draftsman to make a stencil, Blue Angel Airlines. And we went out there and we stenciled that over the door. This is while the aircraft was still white. This was tail number 0690. And uh, he stenciled, you know, Blue Angel Airlines or Fat Albert Airlines on there. And it's been there since. And so it's always been that way. Wow. So there's definitely a piece of history that probably not too many people know. Now, did you have any other responsibilities in addition to taking photos for the team? I was trying to find things all the time that I could do to help the maintenance crew. So I wasn't just standing around. I didn't need to be taking pictures of the crew. I, you know, you I can take a few pictures, but after a while, you don't need to take any more pictures. So I, I observed a couple of things. One is the effort to park the airplanes for the show was a struggle because I mean, it took forever, and everybody's out there sometimes pushing them by hand, sometimes with a tow tracker. Well, in a prior life, I had operated a lot of heavy machinery and driven a lot of, you know, pulled a lot of trailers. And so one day I told the chief, look, just get everybody out of here, leave two guys behind, and I'll park your airplanes for you for the show. After all of their fuel, they're clean, everything ready to go, y'all go to lunch, and the three of us will park these airplanes. So brake rider and a chalk, got to throw the chalks. So I would take the tow tractor and push them in place. And I would park them about three or four inches apart. And I never revealed how I did it, but I could push it back in one take, just boom, boom, boom. So I never revealed to anybody what how I did it, or why it looked so easy. And the, the what my secret was that, you know, the, the wings would cast a shadow on the ramp. And all you had to do is look at where is that shadow relative to the seam in the concrete. Because, you know, about every eight or ten feet, there's an expansion joint. So I would look at that. And then the plane I was pushing, I would look at the shadow from the wing on it and get it down there about five or six inches from the shadow. The, the seam, you know, the relative position of the other airplane. And just push it right straight back. And, you know, you could park them. It would take ten minutes to park them. And so that became my job or the rest of the time I was on the team, was park the airplanes. And then the other job I had was to run the loading crew for the C-130. And there were five of us, and we could load, completely load that airplane in about 30 minutes, about 50,000 pounds of cargo in about 30 minutes. And uh, we would just, you know, hustle. And it, was, it allowed you to eat anything you wanted to eat because you exercised so intensely every, not every day, but about every other day, that, um, you'd have to worry about what you ate. It was great. Uh, uh, the Marines made me an honorary Marine, which I, to this day, one of the best, one of the greatest honors I've ever had was for those guys to bring me into their office and have a ceremony one day and make me an honorary Marine. I thought, you know what? If nothing else happens, that was pretty good. <laughs> and where does your Blue Angel experience fit into your life today? Not a day goes by that I don't think about it. And, of course, you can see behind me in my office, I've got a lot of air show pictures, the Red Arrows, and Mike Murphy before he was killed. and um, That's in Ecuador right there, and that's on the boat up in Narragansett Bay. And here I took a steerman up flying at an air show site. God, let me fly a steerman. That's the Panama Canal, air to air, Mount Fuji. Uh, so, obviously, these things all play a role, and I see and some of my best friends are – guys were on the team. Uh, I made some of my best friends ever. I, it was the time of a life. Traveled all over the world. I think I figured out it was equivalent. Flying was equivalent to like 25 times around the equator. Uh, most of that in the C-130, and it's not a pleasant experience. I'll give you that. But never met a group of people operating at a higher level than the Blue Angels as a team. 
I mean, they expected perfection every day, weren't willing to accept mediocre any day. And I will have to say that that comes into play. And sometimes it's difficult because, you know, in real life, that doesn't happen. You have to settle for something down the middle and be pleasantly surprised when something great pops up. But on the team, they pop up and they stay up there. And uh, it's a great experience uh, and, and an honor to be associated with an organization like that. And on top of that, you run into people like Skip Umstead and then Jim Maslowski, who was a submariner before he was an aviator, got his degree, went to flight school, you know, ended up at the Blues, was a, had a seal of a squadron, air, seal of an aircraft carrier, was Gray Eagle, um, you know, he was the senior flying officer in the Navy. I mean, how often do you meet someone like that? Just never. And a great guy on top of all that. I mean, a, an average, wonderful human being, uh, you know. So we had a collection of characters like that. Uh, and there were a few bad apples. Yeah, we did. Uh, we had a few bad apples uh, on the crew. Um, things happened behind the scenes that nobody ever knew about. Uh, we had people getting busted for their behavior. Um, but, uh, boy, I'll tell you, uh, we were a privileged bunch. We got anything we wanted. You know, we could pull into an Air Force base and have our way at supply. We could take anything we wanted. Uh, and that happened often. Uh, so, in a lot of ways, you had to be careful. And I want to say one other thing, and I completely forgot about it, and, and it's something important that happened. We were in Joplin, Missouri. We were there a couple of times, but we, but we were in Joplin. And we went out to an orphanage and showed a film and talked to the kids out there. And then they came to the air show the next day. And so Jim Rice, who I've mentioned before, he and I and some other guys took all of those kids down to McDonald's. And I think we ordered 35 or 40 Big Macs, 35 or 40 orders of fries and milkshakes and all that stuff and took care of those kids. And so when we were out at the facility, realized the kids were sleeping on the floor and, uh, you know, they, it was, it was, uh, not a good thing. So we got back to Pensacola back over in the, in the trees at Pensacola, there were some old world war II buildings and we had one of those buildings to put spare parts, brochures, stuff we didn't have room for at the hangar. But some, a couple of those buildings were full of furniture that had been taken out of barracks on the base chest of drawers, beds, chairs, lamps, all kinds of stuff. And we got to thinking, you know what? Those kids up there in Joplin could use that stuff. So we talked to our Marines, the C-130, and asked them if we had a plane load of furniture, would they fly it up there? And they, sure. So we cut the lock off of the door and went in there and we, we changed the storage location from Pensacola to Joplin, Missouri, for a bunch of a C-130 load of furniture. And then the crew's wives got together another plane load of clothing. And we took those up there and gave them, unannounced, gave them to that orphanage. And they were so appreciative, they put Jim and, and me on the board of directors for that orphanage. And, you know, we never got to go to their meetings because we were so busy on the road all the time. But to be able to, you know, the old Blue Angels air show, they were all timed, you know, and I have the scripts from all of those Blue Angel TV shows, by the way. Uh, they were all the time, you know, flying medicine cross country for a child that was sick or, you know, uh, all kinds of these things that the team never does. But this was a situation where we actually could use our horsepower and our ability to get things done to help kids that really deserved to be taken care of. And it was a great feeling to be able to do that. And it felt like that all this other stuff, this show business, this flying circus that we did, finally we did something that actually was not in the category of, you know, uh, entertainment for the masses. We actually used our ability to get things done to do something that was meaningful to about 45 or 50 kids. And it was a great feeling. And I know the whole crew felt the same way, the whole team. 
Well, I don't think we could end on a much better story. So Ron Renfro, thank you so much for joining me on the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast today. It was an absolute pleasure to hear your stories. I'm glad to do it. And uh, it's always fun to talk about it. And uh, um, anytime you want to do it again, I'm glad to do it. There's plenty more to talk about. Definitely sounds like we're going to need to do a round two. And I would love to interview you for the Blue Angel Phantoms YouTube channel. Cool. All right, that wraps up this episode of the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. Special thanks to Ron Renfro for joining us today and sharing his memories of his time on the Blue Angels. Now, I love hearing from you guys. So do me a favor, send me an email, hit me up on social media. Tell me what you're thinking of these podcasts. Who do you want me to interview next? Share pictures and memories of a time you saw the Blue Angels. You can email me at blueangelphantoms at gmail.com. You can find me on the Blue Angel Phantoms Instagram handle, or you can find me on Twitter at BlueAngelF4. Regardless, I love hearing from you. I know it's strange times, but we're going to get through this. We're going to put our head down. Everyone, I want you to stay safe. And in the meantime, I'm going to keep pumping out these podcasts. So I'll be in touch, and I'll see you real soon. Take care.